All right, so obviously we are uh, in our study of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. It's a study of primeval history we've been talking about. We've titled the, the total study, Where It All Begins. And we have spent quite a bit of time um, over the last number of weeks. This is uh, lesson number five, by the way. And we've spent quite a bit of time sort of setting things up, talking about uh, our human context and the fact that we are born uh, sinful and we are post-fall human beings who have limitations in terms of our mental capacities and our rational capacities, as well as our bent towards self-centeredness. And so we come to a study about this eternal God and his creative power. Um, We come to this kind of study with limitations, as do anyone else that tries to explore and contemplate and think about and and conduct experiments and, and do calculations and try to generate measurement models for the origins of the universe. Um, We, along with the secular scientific community, we come as post-fall sons and daughters of Adam to this kind of study. So we have to recognize that that we bring to this study presuppositions. We bring to this study settled forms of thinking, settled ways of thinking. And either our settled ways of thinking could be uh, accurate and appropriate and and give us clarity about uh, how we study the, the book of Genesis or it could lead us to complete error and just completely false conclusions that pile upon one another. And if you start reading, the, more, the thing that's really amazed me as I've gotten into this study myself and as I've done a lot of reading, I, you know, the hard part for me in trying to get ready for, for this particular moment right here is figuring out how to just go from this to, to something that we can you know, bite off because I find myself just getting drawn into all these different areas of, of, of writing and research and all these different things that have been talked about, whether it's Big Bang Theory or whether it's all these different areas of physics that, trust me, I don't have any education in. I just get drawn into it. But what has been this common thread that I've found in all of my reading and even my rabbit chasing that I've been doing that's been really unhelpful and distracting for me to really prepare for this time but what I've found is that the, the common uh, occurrence, and you can just pile this up over you know, a span of, of many, 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 many years, the common occurrence is to pile uh, erroneous conclusions based upon bad presuppositions upon erroneous conclusions based upon bad presuppositions that pile upon one another. So this particular researcher goes down this particular pathway with a hypothesis, and they're starting from a vantage point of um, the universe is all that there is, and for us to understand the universe, we just study the physical universe, and we draw our conclusions about the physical universe, and that our, our rational faculties are so powerful that enable us to draw accurate conclusions about it. And so they come to these conclusions, and then someone else reads their research and their findings, and they kind of take it a step further, and they draw further conclusions, or maybe they make nuanced corrections here and there. But it's just piling upon error upon error upon error until you arrive at this place, and you you just find yourself going, well, no wonder people can so easily be co-opted into feeling like they have to come, even even uh, goodwill professing Christian people who come to the text of Genesis chapter 1 and they see this literal 24-hour day, 24-hour, six-day creation kind of narrative roll out, and then they look at all of this 
mass of scientific data, quote unquote, and they feel a little bit overwhelmed and think, because it's so confusing and it's so, it goes in so many different directions, but it all sounds really important and it all sounds really, really compelling. And the conclusions that are drawn in all these different studies, they're adamant and conclusive in their, in their rhetoric. So you, you look at that and they're talking about things that you and I, well, I say you and I, at least I know, I, I, don't, I don't traffic in quantum physics every day, right? I mean, some, some of you might, but I, I don't. And so you start reading all this stuff, and you're going, well, I mean, they sound really smart, and I'm not, I'm not sure that they're just trying to, I mean, there's, there's got to be some level of, of integrity there in terms of professional integrity at minimum. And so it's easy to get overwhelmed by, uh, by what's out there when you come to something that is so straightforward, so sort of cut-to-the-heart revelation of the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1. But what I've also found is that if you just start as a believer with the presupposition that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and that this God is transcendent and eternal and all-powerful and all-knowing and omniscient and omnipresent, that he is altogether other than you, then everything makes sense. You don't, you don't have to do a bunch of mental gymnastics, intellectual gymnastics, scientific gymnastics. It all makes sense. If you start with a presupposition, as we said before, that there is a God and we are not him, that, that creation was a supernatural event, it wasn't naturalistic in its orientation, then it all makes sense. Even, even the science that is being written about and studied and researched about uh, origins or or age of the earth or anything like that uh, begins to fall into place with an accurate or appropriate um, God-centered presupposition about how it all began. So what I want to do today is I want us to step into the creation narrative, and I think what probably what we're going to do is more of a uh, of a flyover of the entire creation narrative. We're going to probably stop short. Um, uh, we're not going to dig too much into um, the creation of man. On day six, and we're not going to really dig into all of it uh, in any, any real depth, but I want to kind of do, I want to read through the entire narrative, at least down through verse 27 of Genesis chapter one, and kind of draw some things out for us to kind of pay attention to that, that gives us a little bit of form and structure as we look at the narrative as it unfolds for us, keeping in mind that this, this account of creation is largely intended to show to God's people this creator God, this God who, who created everything, this God who is sovereign over everything. So we, we need to be looking for and paying attention to not just the particulars of, okay, on day three there was this, and on day four there was that, and how does that line up? I mean, we can, we can look at those particulars and we can evaluate them and scrutinize them but really, if we don't step back and say, what is this showing us about the God who created? We, we get our focus messed up. Again, our tendency is to get focused on creation. As creators, we're focused, we're creation and crea- creator, created being and creation centric in our thinking. And Genesis chapter one is about the creator. It's not all about just creation, although there is a, a level of focus that we're going to talk about. Um, that is really important. 
on the creation, on, on God's purpose in his creation. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 1. And we're just going to read down through at least verse 27 to start us off this morning. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So obviously, we're going to dig much more deeply into some of this creation narrative as we go along, particularly as we get to day six in the creation of man, because there's so many uh, deep and important uh, theological truths that are associated with that. But to just give us a broad structure to think about here as you, as you think about this sweep through this creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, yeah, there's, there's three things that I want us to think about when we think about the broad structure, okay? 
The first thing I want us to look at, we're going to look at a little bit in here in just a second, is the focus of God's creation. The focus of God's creation. You see that in verse 2. Okay, we're going to look at that in just a moment. But then there's also the forming of God's creation. The forming of it. And you see that really focused and emphasized on creation days 1 through 3 in verses 3 through 10. And then... The third thing we'll look at in this general structure is the filling of God's creation. The filling of God's creation, that's really primarily in days 4 through 6, or verses 11 to 31. So you have the focus of God's creation, then you have the forming of God's creation, and then you have the filling of God's creation. That's kind of a general structure that you can see playing out in the various uh, creation days. Now, also, there's some specific things to look at that we'll probably, this is kind of setting up the, really the outline or the framework for us over the next several weeks. But there's also a, some specific components that we see repeating. That, that anytime you see repetition, really in, in most literature, but particularly in scripture, you see repetition, it's often used for emphasis and, and to make, make a point and to point out something that's really important. And so in, in this creation narrative, you see that at work very clearly. You see God speaking. You see creation happening, something happening as a result of what he says. Then you see God declaring a verdict on what has been created. And then you see the day's work concluding with evening and morning on the numbered day. That's kind of the the specific components that you see repeating for the most part on the days of creation. God speaking, creation happening, God declaring a verdict on what he has made, and the day's work concluding with evening and morning on a particularly numbered day. Now, the first thing we see happening on creation day one is what? God said what? Let there be light. And there was light. So we have, we have this, this initial uh, structure, this initial component of creation of God saying something by saying, let there be light. Now that comes on the heels of what we saw um, in verse 2, which says that the earth was without form and void and what was over the face of the deep? Darkness. We talked about this last week. We're talking about not darkness that we would probably experience on a normal basis, but we're talking about the complete absence of, of light, the complete absence of light. And, and you've probably experienced something close to that, where if you've, been in, if you've been shut up in some particular closed space or some environment where there's just no light getting in anywhere, and you really experience utter and complete darkness, so much so that no matter how wide you try to open up your eyes to try to, try to enhance your pupils to expand, to be able to see, you can't see. I mean, you put your hand up right here and you can't see it. There's so much darkness. We're talking about darkness that is characterized by the complete absence of light, of any kind of created light. And also, we talked about this last week too, that the earth, it says, was without form and void. So you have God creating what we would consider all the elements of created, the created universe, the heavens and the earth, or all space and matter. But you also have this introduction of the creation of time. In the beginning, 
God, this eternal God who is transcendent and above time and above space and above all created matter, introduces the element of time into creation, and he creates the elements of the heavens and the elements of the earth. And that is just a, a really a, a rhetorical or poetic way of saying an all-encompassing creation. So it's, it's a similar, a similar um, uh, device, a literary device that you would say, from the heights to the depths, okay, from the east to the west. It's that kind of device. So, so it's, a, it's a statement about God creating everything. So we have, right out of the gate, God creating all the elements of time, space, and matter. But we see right out of the gate as well that the earth is without form and void and darkness is over the surface of the deep. So you have this, this earth that I don't know how to describe it and we don't have a lot of descriptive terms. And I think that anything we do you know, to try and you know, say too much about it, we get off into speculation very easily. There are people that are very willing to do that. I, I'm not so willing to do that. I think it just kind of creates, you know, unhelpful images in our minds that are just really imaginary. But what we can deduce from this is that just from the language, the Hebrew language that's there, and maybe a little bit of references to other places in Scripture, there's some references in Jeremiah when when, uh, Judah is laid desolate, and it's the same kind of language there that says it's without form and void. It's just completely um, desolate, uninhabitable, no form, no shape, and we get a little more insight as the creation account uh, continues as to what, what God does to bring form and shape to this, this, this world as it is at this particular time. But what is crystal clear there is that it is utter darkness. It is enveloped in utter darkness, and so we talked about this last time, how you see as this creation narrative unfolds, you see that God demonstrates his sovereignty. One, and this is a... This is a um, a, a theme that runs throughout scripture, you see that God in his exercise of his sovereign reign and control, that reign and that control and what submission to that reign and control ultimately looks like is bringing order out of disorder, bringing, bringing peace out of chaos. Okay. And so you see this reflected in the Genesis account as well. You see this, this, this creation at its current state as being formless and void and dark. And what we're going to see happen in this creation narrative is God in his sovereign control over bringing his created order into place. It's him bringing order out of disorder. Now, obviously, all that kind of changed in Genesis chapter 3, right? I mean, we're not talking, we're talking about pre-fall order out of disorder. What we see in our fallen state, our fallen world state, both in terms of the physical universe, in terms of the human experience in a fallen world, the effects of the curse, we see disorder and chaos, both internal disorder and chaos in our own soul, in our own wrestling with sin, and in the warring of nations throughout time immemorial. We see it in the upheaval of the created order all the time. We see disorder, but we also know, especially those of us who are professing Christians and have been brought from the domain of darkness into the, this, the kingdom of his son and his marvelous light, we also see how God, even in practical ways, is oriented toward, a, toward bringing us from a place of complete disorder and chaos into places of order as we submit more and more to his sovereign reign 
even in the day-to-day process of working out our salvation with fear and trembling and becoming more submissive and obedient to him as our, our sovereign Lord, we see that God brings even our own personal chaos into order. So you're seeing God reveal elements of his character here as one who says, my sovereign rule is characterized by bringing order out of disorder. And so the first thing that he does to start bringing this order about, well, one other thing I want to make, and we talked a little bit about this last week, is that even in the midst of this disorder, in this chaos, this formless and void world, what do we see that would give us a clear indication of God's sovereign, um, sovereign work in play there? What do we see in the second part of verse 2 to give us that indication that it's not, it's not uh, random disorder and chaos. It's still disorder and formless waste under the sovereign control of God. What do we see there? I'm sorry? The Spirit, right. The Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep. So this, this, this language is, is a language of like, it's, a, it's a, like brooding, like um, um, a reference to like an, an eagle hovering or brooding over its, over its offspring. There's, a, there's an element there, an image there that's created in this language of the, the sovereign God by his Spirit brooding over this formless and void and dark creation at this particular stage. So it's not random chaos and random disorder. It's controlled, and it's just the first stages of God's creative work. And so he brings, he pierces into this darkness created light. He says, let there be light, and there was light. And we see here, right out of the gate, these components of God speaking, and what he speaks comes into existence. Now, there's a theological term uh, that's used to describe this. It's called fiat creation. Have you heard that term? Or creation by fiat, by the will of God, by the command of God. Um, that's what's happening here. And it, there's also another term called ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. So what you see here is you see God creating light where there is no light. There's a complete absence of light, and God brings light into existence, thereby demonstrating another, again, his sovereign power to be able to create something out of nothing, and he brings light into this darkness. Now, there is, um, I, I actually had someone ask me this question. I mean, I, this is the, I, probably after the first week that we started this, this series, um, someone here at church asked me this question, and it, you know, it's, a, it's a fairly common question, um, but I'm going to see if, you can, if, you can, if I can lead you into what this question might be. So as we read through the creation narrative, you have the different days of creation and different things being created on those different days of creation. But you start off by God saying, let there be light. And then he does a separation of the light from the darkness. And then you have that that normal component of there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, in the total picture of God's creative work on each day, do you see a potential problem here in the minds of some. What, 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 do anybody know what that problem might be? There's no sun, right? Creation day four, God creates the heavenly bodies, right? The, the greater light and the lesser light. 
So I had someone actually ask me that question. So I have a question for you. I mean, I'm, I'm barely even starting this series. I'm like, I'm already getting this question like I'm some kind of great apologist on, you know, creative, uh, <laughs> creative uh, creation science or whatever, um, which is far from true. Um, but uh, that was that question. So what, what do you, I mean, it wasn't like a, a skeptical question. It was more like, how would, you, how would you answer that kind of question? But with the creation of light that is distinct and separate from the creation of the sun. So I, obviously I had some time to think about that. I mean, my answer was, yeah, I have no idea. I don't know. Um, but, uh, but I had some time to think about that. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, is that we don't know. That was the right answer. Scripture doesn't tell us. But if you think about that for a second, think about the nature of that question itself on the face of it. Should we get hung up on the fact that God created light, but, uh-oh, I think he messed up because he didn't create the sun until day four? Or is it more kind of compelling to say he just spoke and it came to be, whatever it is? You see what I'm saying? Like we get, we get hung up on some kind of little granular particularity of the way the flow of his creation work, and we completely miss the fact that if he has the power and the authority to speak anything into existence out of nothing, then I'm pretty sure that power would also include the ability to create light that is separate and distinct from the sun until such time as he wants to attach that light as emanating from the sun as part of our solar system. I mean, I'm just, I, I don't know how all that worked. I wasn't there. Were you there? I mean, it doesn't tell me. But I just, I just think that when you look at the power exhibited in, this, in, the, in the way that this is written for us and communicated to us, to, to think that somehow this brings God's power into question, like, I think he slipped up there because, you know, we, we as human beings and all of our expertise We've studied these things, and we know that, you know, the light comes from the sun as far as we experience it. I mean, you know, you see how that slips into our thinking? And we we all of a sudden find ourselves being co-opted by secular scientific presuppositions, even when we're looking at that. So it's it's just another interesting um, dynamic of all these things we've been talking about, about our presuppositions and coming to a text like this. It's the air that we breathe is an air of skepticism, especially when it comes to the creation narrative. But the fact of the matter is, is that God, if he is eternal, all-powerful, above time, above space, transcendent, then he could have created anything he wanted to on the first day, and it would have been so. The point is, is that he speaks, and out of nothing comes what he says needs to come. That's the point. But he brings light into darkness, Before we talk a little bit about light, though, I want us to notice the focus here. Look at the focus of God's creation and think about this for a second. In verse 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it's this all-encompassing creation that takes place. Not the specific ordering of creation, the forming and filling of creation. That's coming coming in in the, the rest of the narrative. But at least we see the, the elements of God's created work. Uh, being brought into existence. 
Um, and, we, and we see this, this creation process getting underway. But notice what happens. He immediately goes in verse 2 to focus on the earth. The earth is formless and void. And from that point forward, the focus is very earth-centered, right? The focus of the creation narrative is very earth-centered until it culminates on day six with the creation of man, who is the one who is to have dominion over the earth and to have fellowship with God and to be created in the image of God. So you have this focus of God on the earth. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Think about the significance of this for a second. And I'm going to give you a little bit of, um, I'm going to take a very, I'm going to dip my pinky toe into astronomy for just a second. Not because I want, I don't want anybody to ask me like follow-up questions, okay? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just telling you, I don't know. If you have, have a follow-up question on any of this stuff, I don't know, okay? I have to look it up. Um, but just to give us a, a sense of perspective here. So the Milky Way galaxy, right? That's our, that's our neighborhood, right? That's our, our terrestrial neighborhood, the Milky Way galaxy. You guys heard of that? Remember that from school? Right, Milky Way galaxy. Um, Milky Way galaxy, uh, astronomers tell us, and astrophysicists, I, I presume as well, tell us that the, uh, the Milky Way galaxy is approximately 100 to 120,000 light years across. So, you know, you get on your bike or whatever and you ride real fast at 186,000 and change miles per minute at the speed of light, right? A second, I mean, per second, yes, yeah, a little faster than that. 186,000 and change miles per second for, for 100,000 years to 120,000 years, and you'll go from one end of the Milky Way to the other. Okay, so can you envision that just in your head? You got that picture? Like, it's like that big. It's like about that big. It's big. The sun is the most massive object in our solar system. Now, our solar system is kind of like, you know, our sort of corner of the Milky Way galaxy. So we're not talking about it's the most massive object in the Milky Way galaxy. It's just in our little solar system. It's the most massive object, measuring approximately 864,938 miles in diameter. I don't know how they get, I don't know if that's right, but that's just what I read, okay? Approximately 864,938 miles in diameter. And yet, so it's, it's the most massive object in our solar system, but it is just a medium-sized star in the Milky Way galaxy among billions of stars in our galaxy. Now get this. The Earth, relative to the sun, which is a medium-sized star in our galaxy, even though it's the largest mass, mass object in our solar system, just a medium-sized star in our galaxy of billions of stars, you could lay, theoretically, you could lay 109 Earths across the surface of the sun, across its, across its diametric surface. You tracking with me there? I mean, it's, so the sun compared to the earth is big. The sun in the context of the Milky Way galaxy is average. Okay, so are you starting to feel, now you're, you and I, we're kind of like on this, this earth in a part of the earth in a part of that land mass, in a county, in a city, in a building, you see how you just kind of get smaller and smaller and smaller as you really think about this. So that's the Milky Way galaxy. Now, I'm, I'm just giving you one. The Andromeda galaxy, 
which is 2.5 million light years away from the Milky Way galaxy. It supposedly measures 260 light years across. And that's compared to 100,000, not 260, 260,000, as compared to 100 to 120,000 light years across the Milky Way. So you've got this whole other galaxy that's a mere 2.5 million light years away from the Milky Way galaxy that measures 260,000 light years across, over double the size of the Milky Way galaxy. And that's just one example, one example. You could kind of go on and on and on and on and on to talk about the vastness of the universe, of God's created universe. It's big. And if you just think about our place in it, just from the, the standpoint of physical size and mass, the more you boil this down to occupy these little bitty chairs that you're sitting in right now, it, it's, it doesn't even create a beep. Okay? And yet you have here God in the midst of all of that vastness that he's created, centering his focus on the earth, was formless and void. That's significant for us to think about. The God that you and I worship, the God who is revealing himself to us in this Genesis account, this creation narrative, is the God who, who measures the universe in, in the span of his hand, Scripture says. Like, like he looks at, I mean, we, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you like little bitty examples here, of just small, minuscule examples when I talk about the Milky Way galaxy or the Andromeda galaxy, or you could talk about the Sombrero galaxy, or all these other things that the Hubble telescope has, has taken pictures of, and they've done measurements on and all these different things. Whether they're accurate or not, I don't know. You have to look it up. But just to give us a sense that God just, you know, the, the image that we have in scriptures, he just kind of goes, yeah, it's about, like, it's about that big right there. In the span of his hand, he measures it. And yet, what Genesis chapter 1 is pointing us to is that God has turned his focus to earth in his creative process. And then he begins to form things. But before he, before he, before we go on into the more talking about forming, I want to talk about light for a second. What do we see in scripture in terms of the imagery that is used to equate things with light? What's significant about light in scripture? Give me some, some scripture references or whatever. Yes. Yes. That's right. Correct. I mean, God can, God is light in essence. In Him is no darkness at all. If he can, he, he can emanate light separate from any other created element in his universe. Righteousness and holiness is associated with light. Darkness is the domain in which un, unredeemed people occupy, it's called. So this image of bringing light into darkness gives us another picture again of what God does in, in his creative work. He is bringing not just light, but illumination He's bringing truth. He's bringing a revelation that kind of gives us an image of his very essence of being light and, and, and penetrating darkness with the light of who he is and the light of his power. 
This is a very powerful um, sort of theme and metaphor all throughout Scripture. And then we have this, this common refrain. He says it, let there be light. There was light. And then in verse 4, he renders his verdict. He saw the light, that it was good. So he declares the light, what he had made, he declares it to be good. And then he does the separation of the light from the darkness, calls the light day, and the darkness he calls night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, obviously, we've talked a little bit about this as we've gone along, and my my intent is to uh, probably talk about this maybe a little more in depth um, down the road a bit, um, once we kind of get through more of the text. Um, but as you know, uh, looking at Genesis chapter 1 as the, the accurate narrative of, of creation, it forces us into considering that the world and the universe was created in a very short period of time, namely six 24-hour days. Now, we talked about this a little bit before, But the natural reading of the text is a morning and an evening the first day. Morning and or evening and morning the first day. Evening and morning the second day. You have to really read more into the text to get something other than that out of it. You have to do some some and I read actually I read something this morning um, by someone that that is would be considered a conservative evangelical Christian scholar. Who would, who would argue that you, we do not have to um, adopt a literal 24-hour, six-day creation from the text. They were making a textual argument to say that that's not a constraint we have to, we have to live with. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that the more you look at the argument that he's making, you see that you start thinking about the, the, the context of Genesis and who would have been the readers of Genesis originally they never would have considered this anything other than a 24-hour day. It completely sets up for the, the Hebrews who would, who would have read this, it sets up for them really a work-to-Sabbath week of time. And that's how they would have read it, and that's how they would have understood it. The language itself, um, you've probably heard some of these arguments before, but the language itself, when you have the word day yom with the number associated with it, uh, it almost exclusively in Scripture is um, referring to a 24-hour period. It's a solar day, if you will. So we have before us God, as the text reads, creating light and then separating light from darkness, literally, in a 24-hour period of time. Now, I want to talk to you about light, and this is from MacArthur's book, The Battle for the Beginning. He just does, a, I think, a really good job of summarizing some of this, the amazing elements of light is what God created. He says, various suggestions have been made about what this light might have been. Could it have been a mass of glowing matter that was later shaped into the sun? Or, as it seems more likely, could it have been a disembodied light, an ethereal temporary brilliance decreed by God to illuminate his creation until permanent lights were set in place? The nature of this light is not described. We are simply told that light existed because God told it to exist. And it should not be difficult for us to believe that one whose glory is described as pure light could command light to appear even before there were any stars or sun to embody that light. And then he poses the question, what is light? Even the best physicists struggle to explain it. 
It has characteristics of both particles and waves. Light photons behave like particles, like tiny specks of dust, except that they have no volume. The energy of a photon is concentrated in a finite space existing at any given moment in a specific location, yet moving at a definable, measurable velocity, and that is why we speak of the speed of light. Yet light also exhibits the characteristics of a wave, which is not a finite entity. A wave, unlike a particle, exists in no finite space. It has a variable frequency, and it may be illustrated mathematically as a sine curve that has no beginning or end. Wave motion, unlike particle motion, involves the transfer of energy from point to point without the transfer of matter. A light wave is essentially a deformation of electric and magnetic fields. To complicate matters further, light waves can behave like particles, and the particle-like photons can behave like waves. Are you guys confused yet? Light is a form of energy. It is essentially electromagnetic radiation, including every frequency from long-wave radiation, radio waves, microwaves, and infrared waves at the high end, to ultraviolet, X-rays, and gamma radiation at the low end. In the middle is visible light, including the entire rainbow of colors. The different colors are simply varying wavelengths of light in the spectrum. White light, what we normally think of when we hear the word light, is not a pure color itself. It is a combination of all the colors in the visible spectrum. The appearance of everything we see is a result of how light waves reflect off objects. But the range of different light waves is infinite and includes far more than visible to our eyes. It just goes on and on and on to describe something that we just take for granted, light. Physicists can't even agree on what light really is in its essence. So when you see scripture in Genesis chapter 1 say, God said, let there be light. If we're really honest and serious about contemplating the, the, the truth here, it should really set off some explosions in our brains. That this God that we worship, again, I go back to what we talked about at the beginning. The Genesis account of creation ought not to create for us or develop for us a way in which we can go to the unbelieving community and say, let me prove to you that God created the world in six 24-hour days. That's not the primary objective for us to study Genesis chapter 1 at all. What it should do for us is it should expand and explode our minds and our hearts around the greatness and power and majesty of the God that we worship, the very God who became man. He sent his son to die on a cross. He called you and I to himself, brought us from darkness and into light, gave us eyes to see, gave us hearts that can worship and respond to our creator in spirit and in truth. Your hearts and your minds, my heart and my mind, should explode when we contemplate the power and majesty of this creator God. When you just look at at the complexity of light as the first thing that he says he created after he started, brought the, the essential matter of the heavens and the earth into place, he said, let there be light. It should just radiate in our hearts as another cause for worship of the living God. Well, next time we're going to look at some more of this forming of God's creation in days one through three and filling of God's creation in days four through six. And we're going to see this pattern repeating over and over again. God speaks, creation happens, God declares his verdict, and the day's work concludes with morning and evening on a literal 24-hour day. Let's pray.